0: You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of The Village Church. Kyle Worley and I are going to talk with, with – uh, you're listening to Culture Matters. <laughs> I'm going to start the whole thing over. Ready to do to do. You're listening to Culture Matters, a podcast of The Village Church. This is Josh Patterson. On today's episode, we're going to look at some historic Christian approaches to cultural engagement. And Kyle Worley and I are going to have a conversation with Rod Dreher about the Benedict Option. God created us to be culture makers, to be creators, sustainers, and consumers of culture. This is the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But ever since sin entered the world in Genesis 3, this cultural mandate became marred and broken. as a result of sin god cursed his creation by causing our making of culture to be more difficult from the toil of our labor to the pains of childbirth he also gave us over to our desires to worship creation over the creator but god set in motion a plan to restore all things through the person and work of jesus christ those who have been reconciled to god through christ now have been free to reclaim the cultural mandate originally established for humankind Though in a limited and flawed manner until the return of Christ, Christians can begin to bring glory to God by again creating, sustaining, and consuming culture. And that has literally been the challenge and question for thousands of years. How do we do this? What does faithfulness look like? How are we to be in the world but not of the world? How do we engage with culture in a way that's not just permissible but that it's actually beneficial? And throughout history, the church has sometimes failed and has sometimes flourished in this cultural calling. Some Christians have taken a, quote, condemning culture approach to cultural engagement, separating themselves from culture and retreating into mere subculture in order to remain holy and distinct from the world some christians have taken a consuming culture approach to cultural engagement these are those men and women who in an attempt to engage and connect culture in turn become like the culture they assimilate to the culture other christians have taken a converting culture approach to cultural engagement and these believers have attempted to control and reign over culture forcing it to submit to the principles and values of the christian faith even sometimes through whatever means necessary. And that brings us to our conversation today in light of our cultural moment and a continual move towards Christianity being pushed to the margins. We're going to have a discussion with Rod Dreher about cultural engagement. And just like any other strategy, this is a strategy that we have to consider the pros and the cons, the the flourishing aspect of it, and then maybe the back edge of that. And so it's a conversation that I'm looking forward to and that we welcome. And we're here now with Rod Dreher. If you don't already know, Rod is a writer and editor, currently serving as senior editor and blogger at the American Conservative. Some of his previous books include The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming and How Dante Can Save Your Life. His new book, of course, is The Benedict Option, which releases on March 14th. Rod and his wife have three kids. They currently reside in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they're part of an Eastern Orthodox community there. Rod, welcome to the show.
1: It's great to be here.
2: Rod, I just want to begin by saying thank you for uh, writing this book. Thank you for uh, your work at the American Conservative. I've been a longtime reader, uh, and so I'm just greatly encouraged by what you're doing and how you're helping the church try to navigate some really complex ethical and cultural issues from uh, the perspective of God's mission in the world. I I want to begin with the basics, when we when we're talking about the Benedict Option, so let's just—you've probably been asked this hundreds, thousands of times over the past several years. What is the Benedict Option? Why do we need it? Maybe try to give us the elevator pitch. If you're trying to explain to somebody really quickly, what is the Benedict Option, and why should any of us care about it?
1: Great. Well, the the first thing I should say is, uh, or should explain is who is Benedict. Saint Benedict of Nursia was uh, a. a Catholic. Well, he was called Catholic and the church was one uh, back in those days, but he was born at the end of the 5th century uh, in a mountain village in Italy. He was a Christian and was sent down to Rome to finish his education as a young man. Uh, The Roman Empire had fallen uh, a couple of decades before and Rome was ruled by barbarians. Benedict was so shocked by the chaos and the moral dissolution in the city of Rome that he went out to live in a cave outside the city uh, to pray, to fast, and to seek God's will. He came out three years later and felt a calling to be a monk and to live to live in community, uh, to serve Christ in community with other men who felt the calling to be monks. He ended up writing a little book called The Rule of St. Benedict, which is nothing more than a guidebook for how to run a monastery. Uh, he called a monastery a school for the Lord's service. So uh, the point of the monastery was to train the men who lived in it into into being Christians, into being Christians in community. Uh, He died sometime in the 500s, having founded 12 monasteries around Rome. What he could not possibly have known, though, is that over the next few centuries, with barbarians ruling Western Europe in the absence of empire, those monasteries would grow and grow and grow and plant new monasteries all throughout Western Europe. And what they did within those monasteries was to preserve the history and the, the tradition and scripture that uh, of the Christian church, and not, and not only that, but Western civilization, some of the Greco-Roman classics, even as they uh, evangelized people and taught them how to pray, uh, taught them how to garden and do things that were lost when Rome fell. So those monasteries became sort of an, an arc that carried the faith across the, the chaos and darkness of the so-called Dark Ages and made it possible for the rebirth of Christian civilization uh, in the future. What I call the Benedict Option, then, is trying to ask ourselves, what would a Benedict who lived today, what would he or what would she be doing to hold on to the Christian faith that we have in our own Dark Age uh, and to make it live and be vital and to preserve it In this time of great chaos and dissolution we have now. A famous philosopher Alistair MacIntyre, who was a Marxist when he wrote this, he later converted to Christianity, he wrote back in 1981 that we are living in a time that is like the fall of Rome in the sense that we have lost touch with our traditions, we've lost touch with the tradition of virtue, and I would say that we've lost touch with the Christian tradition. We're living in a post-Christian time now Uh, not that there are no Christians anywhere, but that Christianity is no longer at the center of our civilization. I believe this calls for dramatic action on the part of Christians, all Christians, evangelicals, Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox, to live much more intentional lives uh, for the sake not only of preserving uh, what we have, but so we can be uh, salt and light in the world.
2: Rod, thank you for that. I want to just ask a question because the fall of the Roman Empire seems to be something that was probably at the time both very visible and um – it was very clear to the people there that the empire was falling. I will admit, and as I've talked about this with other people, the fall of whatever empire we have been in doesn't seem to be nearly as visible. For example, like I drove to work today. I have health care. There's some security stability that I have. I can go a block away and get a Starbucks coffee or a block away and get a burger. There's just This is a time of plenty. And so the fall doesn't seem to be as visible as it may have been with Rome. And so how would you maybe say like  – what are some of the symptoms of that fall that you 're saying, "Hey, we need to strategically withdraw from
0: this because the the sky is crashing, so to speak, and let, let me say this just for this conversation i I want to try to keep it closer to the ground right and um, keep it closer to things that we can feel and touch and sense and understand in suburban Dallas or urban Dallas or wherever people may find themselves listening. So that it it, it's not kind of an ethereal conversation, but it it really is a practical one that I can sense and and identify with.
1: Okay, very good. So you want me to answer that question then that you just posed? Yeah, you bet.
2: Yeah. What are some of the symptoms of uh, of uh, of the fall that you that you believe is happening?
1: Well, the the fall of the Roman Empire was primarily one of material uh, collapse and the collapse of the structures of Roman government. We don't have that. In fact we We live in a time and a place of enormous abundance and complexity. Uh, I don't know if we're going to lose that or not. that's that's in god's God's providence, uh, but we do live in a time of moral collapse and of spiritual collapse that is cloaked by our own prosperity and our own liberty. Uh, let me explain what i mean. Uh, if you If you uh, look back in the twentieth century, the two great dystopian novels were George Orwell's nineteen eighty four and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. 1984 was what those who lived under Soviet communism got. You know, the, the, the they turned the whole society into a prison, basically. But Huxley uh, prophesied what we have in, in the West today, a uh, society that is so given over to pleasure, mm-hmm. especially erotic pleasure, that we forget that there's anything to care about. We, right. you know, we not only forget uh, the truth, but... Uh, and, and our forget truths about community, but we forget that we're supposed to even care. I think that's what we're living in now. And um, you know, whether it's in suburban Dallas or Baton Rouge or wherever uh, you find people today, we have drifted into what the sociologist Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism. Now that's a, a mouthful right there, but but he says that this is the pseudo Christianity that has become parasitic among the churches. It has infected the churches and has taken us away from any kind of historic, grounded understanding of the gospel. In his own work uh, uh, studying American religion, especially among millennials, he said that uh, we have gotten totally away from gospel precepts and have replaced it with a a God who is sort of like a cosmic butler Mm -hmm. who uh, just takes care of us and wants nothing more from us than to be nice. I think this is a real, uh, the real crisis that we face in the church, all of our churches, because we have allowed the world to so conform uh, our understanding of the faith to its norms that we have lost sight or in, are in real danger of losing sight of what historical biblical Christianity demands of us.
0: So let me, let me ask this. You've used words, and that was, that was really helpful to talk about the moral collapse, and I would just go back, and the two books that you reference, um, 1984 and Brave New World, I think are important works for us to read and interact with today and to come back to those and think about those. In fact, I think I referenced Brave New World on a couple of uh, episodes in the past, thinking about how the trivial nature and the hedonistic pursuit of our culture it, it there is a rising flood a rising tide of that so you use the word ark earlier to describe this idea of preserving keeping safeguarding and and ark is an image that's also used with with floodwaters there's this rising flood of secular secularism secularization and and the call with this benedict option is to keep and preserve the gospel in an ark so to speak so that when the floodwaters recede, the gospel is there. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, that is fair.
0: And so help me understand this as we're thinking about um, what, what does it then look like in, in, in terms of concerns that may come up with this, and how do we think about this? If we think about a society that is no longer welcoming to Christianity— I think about China, Southeast Asia, and some of the underground movements of how the gospel is spreading in these particular areas where it is certainly not favorable to the gospel itself. So in China, it's not favorable for the gospel, yet the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Does that make sense in terms of the question?
1: Oh, yeah, it, it does. And I, I think what you're asking is if um, if we close ourselves off in – Sort of compounds that are not open to the world. Right, How do we spread right. the gospel? Yes. How do we fulfill the great Commission? Yes, I'm glad you asked that because that is one. That is the biggest misconception about the Benedict Option that I face, and uh, I, I would answer it like this: We, uh, if you go to look at a monastery like the monastery in uh, Norcia, the Benedictine monastery there where I, I visited. They do live a closed-off life away from the world. They're not completely closed off, and they receive pilgrims and people seeking spiritual advice. They offer them hospitality because that's part of their way of life, but um, they also will tell you that the only way that they could be for the world, for the people who come to see them, who they are supposed to be, is by spending time away from the world, cloistered away in scripture study, in prayer, and in labor, and in silence. Now, the rest of us are not called to live as monks. I certainly don't have that calling, and I don't think any person living in the world does. But what I think we can learn from them is that we need to spend more time uh, away from the world in the sense of, say, cutting out television, cutting out smartphones for our kids, spending more time uh, in Scripture study, in prayer, in fasting, in doing these different practices that build up not only our knowledge and our minds, but that train our hearts in the ways of Christian living so that we can go out into the world and be that light that Christ calls us to be. In other words, you can't give people what you don't have. And I think that in our churches we have become so captive to the world and the world's way of seeing things that we have lost the savor. We don't really look that much different from the world in many cases. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine in Dallas was telling me about uh, a prayer request that went around in her circles of uh, Christian moms. Uh, A mom said that she was pregnant with triplets, they had in vitro fertilization, and she and her husband were prayerfully considering whether to do selective elimination. In other words, they wanted to uh, abort one of the children. And she said that we just don't feel God is calling us to raise triplets now. And she was seeking people to pray for God's will for her. Now, what was interesting to me about that was this is a moral horror by any kind of traditional Christian right. um, Christian way of seeing it. But the mom used the language of Christianity, uh, all the sentimental piety, to obscure what, what the, the, the killing of her unborn child. This is what I mean. This is one facet of what I mean by we've been so absorbed by the world that we can't even think straight.
0: Right. So let let me thank you for that and that example. So bringing it down to the ground is really helpful, and I appreciate your insight uh, in terms of what that you're not you are not saying that we're all to retreat into monasteries and these types of things because. I think the characterization against this particular strategy that you're putting forward, um, I'm not sure that people have thought about it in the way that you've thought about it. And, and it has been – there's been some easy reactions against it. Um, a concern a, a concern that I would have is that someone would hear this, a well-intentioned believer would hear this and, and hear the idea of ark, retreat, building walls, pulling away – and what's motivating that is a fear of losing favor, right a fear that their children uh, may not be accepted, a, a fear that they may be seen a certain way, rather than a genuine love for the Lord because the things that you just described, rod, right, are, are things that that the scriptures would call any uh, gospel loving bible believing believer to do, which is engage in the disciplines of prayer and fasting and study. Uh, and live a life of holiness unto the Lord through gospel motivations. Like that that has been true since day one. That has never not been true. And um, and so rather than a genuine love for Christ motivating our hearts to do these things, there could be this reactionary, oh, geez, the culture is changing. That's scaring me. I'm going to lose favor. Therefore, I'm retreating out of fear and not out of love.
1: Right. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I do think that all I'm calling for in the Benedict Option is for the Church to be the Church, yeah. the Church we were always supposed to be, but we've forgotten somehow. Uh, what I quote somebody in the book as saying, oh, the Benedict Option is only about the Church being the Church, but if you say that, nobody will listen to you. You have to give it a label. So maybe there, there's some of that. But um, what the Benedict Option is, is a, a strong call to return to spiritual discipline And discipleship. Um, And it's not a call made out of fear, although I think there are some things to be afraid of in the world, but rather a call to run towards something, towards something good and holy and life-giving. But it's going to require real conversion. This is not just something that we can add on to our our lives. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I was recently at an evangelical college giving a couple of talks and uh, one of the the students at the college stood up and said, I I hear you saying all this about the Benedict Option, but I don't understand why we have to do all these disciplines you talk about. Why isn't it enough for us just to love the Lord with all our hearts, as I was taught growing up? And I think that was a really good question. And I I told her that love has to take certain forms. Our, Our hearts are formed to Christ, By the way we live and the things we choose not to do. Um, Loving Jesus and following Jesus is not just about arranging our emotions in a way that delivers us from anxiety, but it's about dying to ourselves. And we don't, American Christianity in all its forms has lost that sense that we are to die to ourselves. And I fear that we're going to lose Christianity over the generations if we don't regain that Early church uh, sense of, of passion and of being being aliens and exiles in this world, but as people who have our feet in heaven and are, who want to bring the world to Christ, I think that's going to require a very different kind of living from all of us. It's going to be different across churches. I mean, a Southern Baptist Benedict adoption is going to be different from an Eastern Orthodox one. But the thing we have, we share in common is a commitment to much more uh, to living Christian living that is much more about discipleship. One of the professors at this evangelical school said to me that um, the problem with a lot of the kids that are sent to them today that they they have is that they equate being Christian with being nice. So when somebody comes along from the world and says, hey, that Christian teaching is mean, they will collapse. Uh, So many of of our young people don't have any real doctrinal formation at all. And so they they come – they enter into the world like lambs going before wolves, uh, and they are often more transformed by the world than they are world transformers. Yeah. Does, does this make sense at all? No,
2: it absolutely does, Rod. I, I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say throughout uh, your responses is that there is, there is a need for a strategic withdrawal, not to preserve favor with society but to preserve the savor or the distinctiveness, the saltiness of the church. Oh. Oh.
1: And, I like the way you put that. And, and in fact, it's just the opposite about preserving favor with the world. The world is going to hate us. The world hates us now. We are going, if we're faithful to Christ, we're going to be in many ways like that, that Southern Baptist Flora uh, Baroness Dutzman in Washington State who's losing her business over, um, over her religious convictions. So- this is going to start. To- So
2: can I pause you there, Rod? And the reason I want to is because one of the things that I've appreciated about your work is that you've been um, you've been as critical of religion in power or maybe let's say superficial religion in power as you have been about the spread of secularism and and I think what you've just made mention of in terms of uh, you know uh, the the questions of ethics and civics and business and politics and Christian life um, I, I feel like that gets to this issue of a question we had for you which is it seems right now like if I'm talking to I have some friends some family members that are going, hey, you guys have been saying for a long time that America is drifting. Well, 81 percent of the evangelical vote just showed up to elect somebody who said it was going to be a primary part of their uh, elected office to keep America drifting towards Christianity. So in this drift… Why is it important for the church to still keep a sense of separation from the state? Doesn't it look like our voice just spoke and it was heard uh, in terms of think- representing the 81% of evangelicals? I mean, is this something that—are we being premature in saying, like, maybe the tide is turning?
1: Oh, uh, no. not The tide is absolutely not turning. And I think Christians who, uh, who believe that it is believe the election of Donald Trump uh, signals of turning up the tide are deluding themselves. And I don't say that in an anti-Trump way necessarily. Although, uh, you know, a three-times-married casino owner—the idea that he is going to be this great knight restoring Christianity to America—is is almost a joke. But even if Donald Trump were a saint, were uh, you know, paid-up Christian, uh, baptized in the Spirit, and everything else that we that we we seek, he could not stop the tides of the currents, the deep undercurrents of culture that are moving America further and further away from Christianity. And in fact, I think that our political victories as Christians over the past 30, 40 years, as members of the uh, so-called religious right, if you don't mind that word, uh, have blinded us to what was actually happening in the culture. We we tended to think that if we just vote the right way and get those values, voters, ballots in... Uh, then the culture will take care of itself, but that has been proven to be not true at all. And if you look at the, the sociologist Christian Smith's research, most, the, the overwhelming majority of American Christians have no basic idea what Christianity really teaches. And uh, the the idea of Christian strength, as shown by uh, by the election election results, in, in this and this in any election, that is just a paper tiger. It really is, and we can 't be lulled into into any kind of comfort that way. I think that you know, Trump will certainly not be as bad on religious liberty as Hillary Clinton would have been. The way I see it is that just gives us four more years, maybe eight years to prepare for the inevitable
0: we 've talked about this before, and you know regardless of the way the election went. Um, what what this political climate has demonstrated to the church is that the church has lost the savviness and the skills of knowing how to interact in a culture like this. And it seems like what you're advocating here is the opportunity for the church – and I I, I really want to not use the word retreat – but for the church to begin to proactively begin to utilize those muscles that have atrophied over the years – And so that we develop a strength, develop a skill, develop a savviness to know what it means to be in the world but not of the world, right? To be able to to be citizens of another kingdom while still living here on earth and know what it means to interact and engage. And that engagement is not simply done in the ballot box.
1: Um, That's right. You're so right. And because serving Christ is going to cost us in this culture that is now emerging. Uh, we're going to be pushed out of the public square for our fidelity, and we have, to have, we have to have lived with the courage inside, developing the courage inside and the knowledge and the habits of the heart that allow us to suffer and rejoice as we're suffering. Um, that's not something that we're used to in American Christianity. We've had it good for a long time. Around the world today, as you were saying, in China and many other countries, Christians are putting their lives on the, lines, on the line to serve Christ. I don't think it'll get that bad in this country. I hope it it won't. But there are all kinds of ways to apostatize. You know, the the loss of social favor, the loss of a possibility for a career, that's going to be a greater price than a lot of American Christians who have not been strongly formed. Uh, it's going to be more price than they're willing to pay. And I guess what I what I hope for the church is that we will live in such a way as the Babylonian, the Hebrews in Babylonian exile did. Now, the Lord told them that he had them there for a period. He, you know, that, this is part of his will. He told them you know, to take wives among them and to, to pray for the prosperity of the city. But he also told them that he was going to call them out one day. And we ha- and he told them also not to listen to the diviners in the city. What I want for the church is for us to develop the, uh, the vi- moral vision and the courage in our hearts to do like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, be put into the furnace, if that is our will, and would go there rather than apostatize and sell out the Lord.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Rod. I, I want to maybe just end with uh, this question. What's the heart behind this book in terms of what's your motivation? What's the real burden, the hope that you're hoping Christians will take away from it? Um, as you think about the, the life of this book in the years ahead, particularly in the next four years uh, under this president and in kind of this
0: iteration of the country's life? What do you really hope this book will accomplish? Okay, let me let me jump in. Before you answer that, Rod, I, I do want to say this. I think this book is an important book to interact with. Certainly, there are things that I disagree with in the book. There, there are elements of the book that I think, ah, I don't know about that, which any provocative work, and I mean that in the good sense, so hear that in the in the encouraging sense, you're pushing something on us here that's forcing a conversation that needs to happen. And so I, I want to thank you for that, um, and I think you're you 're benefiting the church with that conversation it 's one that that we have not had in an intelligent and meaningful way that we need to be having it doesn 't mean that I necessarily agree with all the strategic impulses and ideas that you 've generated in this book, and certainly not everyone does and that 's fine. But there is something that to what Kyle is asking you here there 's a burden that pushed you or compelled you for this for this work for this option and um so one i want to encourage you in it and then i'd love to hear how you would answer that
1: well i, I thank you for that and and i expect that and actually want that from readers of the book I, this book is not full of of answers to problems but it really i hope it raises questions really strong and deep questions about the way we're living today as christians and whether or not this is sustainable we're all aware of the of the the dramatically falling numbers of the Christian faith among millennials. And I think this is probably going to continue. I wrote this book, uh, Keeping in Mind My Own Children, and what I hope one day will be grandchildren and their grandchildren. Will there be a faith for them to to practice? And will the faith be active and in, in, instantiated in local churches and local communities in this time of great trial? Uh, you can look in Europe. I love going to Europe, but it's one of the saddest things to go see these beautiful cathedrals and churches, and nobody goes to them. Uh, the faith is on its, on, on its last legs in Europe. This can happen to us, too. A lot of Americans don't think so. We look around and see all our churches everywhere. This is something very, very fragile. If the faith doesn't live in the hearts of the people, and if, it, and if that faith is not translated into certain teachings and practices that we live out, we don't just keep in our head, we live them out sacrificially in our daily lives, and Christianity is going to disappear. I mean the Lord promised us that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church, but he did not say the gates of hell would not prevail against his church in the West. And if, if we turn our back on the Holy Spirit, then he's going to go where he's wanted, whether that's China, the Global South, all over. This is on us. God is there for us and he's calling us, but to answer that call in this post-Christian time in the 21st century United States of America which is going to require much more intentional and sacrificial living. And it's going to require Christians from all, all traditions of Christianity, evangelicalism, Catholicism, and orthodoxy, to be creative and to figure out what this means within our own traditions and what we can learn from each other without giving up our denominational distinctives.
0: Hey, Rod, thank you so much yeah, and thanks for brother. being on the show, contributing to the conversation and, and helping us, helping us think through these things. I think, I think your hope for the book, you are doing those very things. You are, you are, you are putting forward questions that require answers and you're not, you're not necessarily saying I have found the one silver bullet solution and, and it is forcing a conversation, one that we're grateful for. So thanks for your time on the show with us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, and God be with you guys. We're all in this together. Amen. Bless you, brother. Thank you, Thank you.
0: If there's anything you heard us talk about today on the show that you'd like to know more about, you can find these details on our website, tvcresources.net. That's tvcresources.net. On our next episode, we're going to have a handful of staff members on to discuss the season of Lent. We'll see you next time. God bless.